This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So at The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. That's Ryan. Ryan, welcome back to The Forging Table. You took a little bit of a break. Good to see you again. But we're on this side of the table, and when I look across the table, I don't really see guys that I recognize. Like, what happened? Did you let these guys in here? Yeah, I did. Okay. I don't, well, I'm going to evaluate you directly if this goes incredibly we, poorly. We have the Russell Moore here. But, That's okay. all I got to say. We're going to introduce <laughs> these guys one by one. One of the guys' names is Russell Moore, but not that Russell Moore. That is like a dream of mine to have him. I want Russell Moore and Beth Moore across this table at some point. Can and it I is going to be, yes, and it will be a bloodbath. <laughs> and then we've got Zach Foster. So you guys, you're new to the forging table, but you're both fans of the show. You've, you've liked this. You've, you've kind of been in our inner circle of, of friends for a while. So I'm very excited to have y'all on here, but I do want to get the audience used to you guys and kind of give them an idea of who you guys are. So Russell, we'll start with you. Do you like being called Russ? Let's start there. Keep Does going. it bother you? Cause I know some Russell's that only want to be called Russ and Russ, you know, the same, the other way. So you're good with either? No preference. Okay. Yeah. So no preference. So, um, this is what we're going to do. You have two minutes to answer these three questions. Okay. How did you become a Christian? Oh crap. I forgot my own questions. How do you become a Christian? Uh, how do you like to study the Bible and how does your brain work? So dig into those and we'll, we'll go on to Zach from there. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in kind of a moral home, good home, traveled around a lot, but not really a Christian home. So I didn't really grow up going to church. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, summer before eighth grade, um, moved to kind of a small hometown where my grandparents were from, and uh, church was an important part of their life. And really from that, that kind of led me to understand that I needed a savior in my life. I wasn't perfect. Um, and, and that really kind of led me to accepting Christ as my savior. It's really more of a fire insurance policy at that time. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah, you're, yeah. you're 13, 14 years old. Um, so I kind of understood that I wasn't perfect and I needed, I wanted to be, have eternal life. Um, but really it was in college, um, through ministry, through campus crusade or crew now that really, I started to mature my faith. So I'd say that my spiritual journey is the last 15 years. It's really not since I was a kid. Um, so that's kind of how I became a Christian. Okay. Uh, how do I like to study the Bible? Uh, for me, I really like to kind of just read it, um, kind of read it for what it is kind of literally usually just a chapter at a time or two chapters at a time and trying to figure out how do I practically apply this to my life? So. Um, I really, really try to make um, studying the Bible not an academic exercise because, I mean, the Bible is God's word. It's the Holy Spirit um, speaking to you. And while there is context and there's history and there's lots of things that are really um, important to understand, to really understand God's word, I really try to look at how can I apply this to my life? Um, So that's really what I'll focus on. And, And there's some pretty cool questions like, hey, is there a sin to avoid in this text? Is there, I'm a promise to claim in this text? You know, is there, you know, something new about God in this text. So, so you like have those in mind as you're reading yeah, through yeah. passages? Yeah, and actually through a little, like a little quiet time journal I have, um, uh, it's called Every Man a Warrior. There was a little Bible study that kind of laid out these questions. Mm. Kind of like the 2-7, so there's Colossians 2-7 series. Um, they kind of ask these questions. Like, hey, when you have a quiet time, here's some good questions to ask. And so those are some of them that, that I kind of generally try to ask myself when I'm studying the Bible, um, just on a daily basis. That looks a lot different when, hey, I'm trying to sit around and, 
talks through a chapter, yeah, may look a little different. So, and then um, how does your brain work? So I'm like a lot of men, I'm pretty visual. So if I can visualize the context and, and kind of what I'm seeing, I think I can really, it really hits home for me. So I'm not an auditory guy. Okay. Um, I'm much more visual. So if, if I can put it in a slideshow or if somebody can kind of act it out for me or whatever, I'm, I'm a whole lot better. But when it comes to reading the Bible, I have to then put word pictures and, and things like that together, which is why I love Paul's letter or Jesus's teachings or others, because they're just so graphic, right? And some mm-hmm. of these Psalms are very graphic and they really hit home for me. Okay. Very good. Makes sense. Russell Moore, you are officially part of the forging table. Congratulations. <laughs> you nailed it. So Zach, that's what you have to live up to. Like how well he answered all those questions from the very beginning. So how'd you become a Christian? I literally forgot it again. How'd you become a Christian? <laughs> how do you like to study the Bible and how's your brain work? Yep. Uh, how do I become a Christian? I was raised in a household that was uh, not religious at all, not spiritual, very moral. I would say that my mom raised us uh, in a moral way. But I didn't know Christ um, really till I was 33, now I'm 36, so about three years, three and a half years now. And um, a friend had challenged me, and we were talking about God, and I was probably um, you know, denying what they were having to say. And um, they just asked me, where's your prayer game at? Or who do you call Jesus Christ? And I'm like, oh, crap, those aren't questions I've ever really uh, thought about. So that night, December 23rd, 2019, I just started talking to the, the roof of the vehicle I was in and just asking God, you know, if you're real, show me. And it just, he just kind of put it in me that, you know, if you, know, you believe that um, all the relationships you've had and the, the bond that you and your mom share are, are real and deep, and that's the most profound thing that you can understand, then, you know, at the time, that was the most profound thing to me. So he just made it very obvious to me that he was a creator, created the universe, created love. And I just broke down and just realized that God was real. And I was just radically changed. Gotcha. And so how do you like when you say the Bible normally, which is, it's interesting because I'm sure in the first three years of really studying it seriously, you're going to go through like a lot of changes. So like where you're at today, how do you like to study the Bible? Uh, Practical application. I mean, I just try to a lot of uh, what Russell was just saying, but uh, more for me, I will be reading in whatever chapter and whatever verse and trying to um, compare how my life looks to that verse or to that chapter. So I'm trying to see if, if Zach Foster is becoming more Christ-like every day. Am I building? Am I becoming better? And what I'm reading, uh, how does that apply to life? Okay. Now, how does your brain work? I'm lucky if it just starts working every day. So <laughs> glad to be awake. Got to grease it up every today. morning. Like, yeah. let's go. Definitely got to grease it up every morning. I'm a uh, repetition guy. I would say whether I'm reading or visualizing, whatever it is, I need it five times before I can really get it. Yeah, I feel like that's interesting because we always have a, a grouping at this table where there's people that are like kind of the slow cookers. They really need some time. There are people that are repetitive. There are people that are like, okay, yep, got it. Or I got whatever percentage I needed of this. And then now I can kind of move on from there. And it's also kind of interesting because we have varying levels of experience within Christianity and distance. So, so another Zach that sat there, you know, uh, a few months back, Zach Todd, he's kind of the same, like came to Christ in his thirties. And, you know, 
has a family and he's trying to figure out and traverse kind of what all that looks like for his wife and kids and, and everything like that. And so it's very, very interesting to get into that. Now, today we're going to be keeping the momentum going with the Psalms. We're going to be getting into Psalm 2, and that is actually Matt Grassmeyer's favorite Psalm. And so like, I think we're, we're hitting a thousand right now for guys that aren't actually in the room for like their favorite Psalm or whatever, just because that's the way the cookie crumbled with how we did it. But I did get Matt to send me a text as to why Psalm 2 is his favorite Psalm, and then we'll go ahead and dig into it from there. So I'll read this from him. Psalm 2, why is it my favorite? The Psalm of the Reign of God's Anointed. And he put an exclamation point in there, so I didn't do him very much justice. Uh, I didn't read it very well. Sorry, Matt. We can look to Christ on high even when the nations rage and rebel against God's order. This is the Christ who put the entire world under his feet. There is no one that escapes the judgment and wrath. Woe to those who think that Jesus is a hippie who couldn't hurt a fly. And then he has a quote here, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. That's from Psalm 2. The triumphant son of God will break them with the rod of iron. Don't be fooled by thinking that Jesus forgot to ask. There are but two paths. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Justice will prevail, but in Christ, thanks be to God that the end of the psalm gives us the invitation, quote, blessed are those who take refuge in him, unquote. Christ is our refuge and hope, and even though the world seems hopeless, Christ is victorious, and we can assuredly rest in that. So, Matt, thank you very much for sending that our way. I know that'll be helpful for guys as we dig in here. Now, this is one that's an, it's an interesting psalm that it is basically ascribed to David, but it's not like elucidated here from like the title that it's from David. But if you go to Acts 4.25, that's where it basically gives credit to David for the psalm. And there's a lot of different places that will break up the psalm in different ways. There was one place, and I'd love to give them credit. I can't remember which which commentary I looked at, but they looked at different scenes of the psalm. And so the first scene was human rebellion. That's verses one through three. The second scene was divine reaction, which is verses four through six. And then the third scene is divine rule. That's seven through nine. And then the last one is human responsibility, which is 10 through 12. So that's a, a nice like kind of breaking up of what that looks like. But the thing that that really gets me from the very beginning here is it's talking about political leaders. Okay. Um, because, and I can go ahead and read this and, and we may not read all the Psalms or whatever, but this one's short enough for us to maybe read the whole thing. And I'll be reading from the ESV. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And the word used there for anointed is Messiah that, you know, it's kind of foreshadowing Jesus saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. And so when it's talking about the Kings here, guys, those are political leaders. And so I guess I'm struck here from the beginning, and maybe this is a little bit too much culture talk from the very beginning here, but we have a lot of people, you know, the, the kind of go along to get along people that I want to be known for what I'm for, not when I'm against people. They, they always look at the political leaders of the day and they're like, well, they're just being divisive for political purposes. And that's not the way it was in biblical times and all that. And it's like, you, you read something like Psalm two, it's like, no, the stuff we're dealing with today, it's, I heard a pastor say something recently. It's like, it's the same spirits just manifesting in a different way. They're wearing different clothes and wearing different makeup and they have different positions. But I, I thought that this was a very, very political place to start, which, which I thought was interesting for the time that we're in. And this is the part new guys where I stopped talking and then like anybody at the table. Yeah. You're giggling. You've been here, Ryan. You have no excuses, but typically I'm just going to let y'all know how this goes. So I stopped talking and then like dead air is the worst thing possible. So even if it's just a joke, you just kind of launch in, you just, you go in with a joke. So 
I'll take that as an L for me that I did the worst setup and right from the beginning here, but now I'm done talking in three, two, one. It was a good setup. There it is. There see? We are. You see how smooth that was? It was just like butter from one guy to the next. It was a very good setup. And I like to say that you probably got a lot of that scene stuff from MacArthur's commentary. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's I right. That the makes exact sense. one. Okay. So, um, I think you're right. When you look at it, you're looking at the culture then and the culture now, not much is going to change. Um, we're, we're still going to have leaders that are divisive. We're still going to have leaders that are, want power. We're still going to have parties that want power. Um, but where's that power coming from? Is, is it coming from man or is it coming from, from God? Um, and I think that's something that we have to look through and we have to look at is, you know, is this what God wants this to look like or is this what I want it to look like? So uh, I can see that, um, you know, me being the guy that I am, I read that verse and I, and I think about politicians and I think about, you know, what's going on nowadays, but I also kind of look at myself, you know, how do I plot in vain? Uh, how do I rage? And uh, one of the notes that I took down is um, uh, we plot against God with our own idols. We anoint them over him. And that's one thing that I looked at, you know, what is my idol? Is my idol him or is my idol what I want something to be? And that's what we look at when we look at our politicians. You know, uh, if I'm looking at my political party or I'm looking at the person I'm going to vote for, what is their idol? Is their idol going to be what God wants or is their idol going to be what they think is right? And so for you guys, like, I don't really see, you know, Russell or Zach, I don't really see y'all as like deeply political people. Like, I don't, I don't know that I would ever expect to be driving through town and seeing you guys holding up a political sign or something like that. Yeah. But a lot of these, these problems do manifest in the political realm. And so people talk about how, oh, you know, you can't legislate morality. It's like, that's what everybody does. Every single politician is legislating their version of morality, but sometimes their version of it doesn't seem too terribly moral to, you know, people of the book. But I mean, for, for you guys, like, how does, how does something like reading even the first part of that affect how you would operate? Because this gets into the conversation of sphere of sovereignty and do we need to be a theocracy, right? Where it's like the Christianity is ruling the United States of America. Like where, where do you guys kind of land on that? Man, um, when I read this, it's even goes a step further. I think, I think it really points to the fact that, um, and, and I actually was listening to a message from Tim Keller kind of about this. And this was, 26 years ago or 27 years ago when he, this message. So put in context, yeah. so, you know, now you're you know, 27, 20 years ago. It was a lot different then. Um, but, but I was listening to that message and, and his point I thought was really poignant was really, we, we all want, we all, uh, we don't, I guess we don't say it this way, but we're all looking for a savior. We're all looking for a King. Right. And so we're idolizing something we're worshiping something. And then, um, he went on to quote someone and basically said that democracy is really the medicine. It's not the solution. And I thought that was really interesting. And I never really, I mean, I kind of, as an American, kind of considered democracy as like the, the highest of highs. It's the thing to be, become. But really, it's really, we really just need that perfect king. And there's only one perfect king, and that's Jesus Christ. And I think that that's really um, was what I was kind of struck by is that we're, we're all kind of clawing for this. And he, he pointed out, hey, look at fairy tales. Look at, you know, King Arthur when the good king's away, right? Look at um, Robin Hood, right, when good King Richard is away or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, we have all these fairy tales about what the good king is, but there's never really been that good king, right, except for Jesus Christ. And that's what we're all looking towards. And so in the meantime, until he comes again, it's like, how do we, how do we you know, um, live in today's world, right, when there's kind of Satan ruling this world? Um, and it's a little bit tricky, but I just thought that was really interesting, this concept of, you know, that's really what we're all doing. We're all looking for a king, for a savior. Right. 
Um, and so how do you, how does that play in the political environment? I don't, I, I don't really know because I struggle with it. Well, candidly. let me ask you this. So I, I know that there are people and, and everyone kind of has their own opinion of this, but like there are people that will go to their local city council and regardless of the thing that they're complaining about, you know, critical race theory in the schools or a stop sign they want in their neighborhood. Like there are some people that they will start quoting scripture at their civil magistrates, their, their local magistrates that are the ones that are kind of lording over them. And that strikes people as odd, even Christians as odd, because it's like, this is, this is not a biblical issue. Like, I, I understand that, you know, God puts these, these rulers in our lives technically and, and like those types of things, but it's like, not everyone's going to ascribe to that particular point of view. And also, I think that we're, we kind of lull ourselves to sleep a little bit being in America and having this free speech that we do is it's like, you don't really have like school board meetings in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. And it's like, does, does the scripture apply more here because it's easier to preach or, or less there because it's harder and you may, you know, lose your top knot in the whole process. Does that make sense? I think it just comes down to what's the issue. You know, if the issue were, you know, the United States is built on Judeo-Christian values. So if we're, if we're looking at a morality issue, we're going to look at it through this lens. And I think most people, when they, when they're voting or they're, they're talking to a magistrate or a politician, they're going to see what type of lens they're viewing morality at. And if you're viewing morality in a different lens than I do, I'm going to be suspect of that, whether uh, I agree with it or not. But I think reading verses out, unless it has to deal with the subject, it doesn't make any sense. Right. So since the beginning of time, you know, all the rulers, kings of the world have been trying to rebel against God, kind of like the socialism you know, type of um, uh, government that you know, people are trying to preach these days. So it's every time people are getting further away from God, they're getting, um, they're just, they're losing how it was created. You know, it started with uh, God's word and that was the law. And now everybody is misspeaking and thinking that they can change the law and change it to socialism. And this is a new kind of law and it'll work, but, uh, the further you move away from God all throughout, uh, since the beginning of time, it just never seems to work. I do. Go ahead, Ryan. I think there's something I wanted to bring up in regards to uh, Russell talking about for, uh, foreshadowing. Um, I really see in verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed or his anointed. There's a foreshadowing of revelation there and the fact that um, Christ is going to come back, you know, and we want to talk about those guys who I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against. And they want to build this utopia. They're not going to build it. They're depraved human beings, just like you and I, the only person that's going to be able to rebuild it is Christ himself. And when we think that our, our politicians and our judges and our magistrates are going to do it, we're just as blind as anybody else, because we got to understand that, yeah, we may have this look in life, but we can't put our faith in these people because they laugh just as much in front of the anointed as the other people. So I, that reminds me when you were saying that, <clears throat> when I did that debate with Shane Claiborne on the Unbelievable podcast, we were debating the Second Amendment and self-defense and guns and all that kind of stuff. And this is a guy that goes around the country convincing law-abiding citizens to turn their guns in and be destroyed in front of them because guns in and of themselves are evil. And he bases his entire worldview and his entire ministry on uh, parts of Isaiah 2 where it talks about uh, turning your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks and that type of thing. And if you just like with any scripture, if you just pluck that out of Isaiah too, it, it sounds good. It's like, yeah, yeah, we're, we should just turn in all our weapons into garden tools. Like that makes a great, great, you know, idea. But Isaiah two, basically what it's talking about is like, these are things that are going to happen in this broken world and it can only be fixed 
by Christ coming back and fixing it, right? Like, and then I think it's Isaiah 9. It's like, okay, you're going to have these major problems all the way up until Christ returns, okay? That doesn't mean don't push back darkness. That doesn't mean fight against it. But at the same time, it's like, let me just kind of keep you up to speed here. Like, this is going to be a major problem. But also, it's talking about, you know, foundations of worldviews. And so, Zach, you were talking about, you know, socialism, communism, all the, the popular isms of this day. Those are ideologies that have their feet planted firmly in midair because you will have morons that will say things like, oh, well, you know, Stalin just didn't do communism right. It's like, no, Stalin did it exactly to the T almost and tens of millions of people died. That's what that worldview leads to. There's no, there's no world where, because communism has been tried in enormous countries with a lot of GDP and tiny countries with tiny GDP and they've all messed it up, right? Or contrastingly, they didn't mess up anything. They did the dictates of the ideology and the ideology just came from the pits of hell and it doesn't lead to human flourishing. But I do want to kind of divert out of the world of uh, political, philosophical a little bit. And I mean, this is a complete left turn. I want to talk about verse four real quick. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Laughs is the word there that I want to really tie into. And I wrote in my margins here, gives God personality. So I'm guilty of this, and I get the sense that a lot of people are guilty of this, is that when we read Scripture and we read about God the Father or God the Son, and I guess you could say God the Holy Spirit, we give those three entities or we give them in their totality in the Trinity no personality whatsoever, right? And there are a lot of people that I'm finding that hate the chosen. They think the show is demonic because it's not 100% biblical, like because there wasn't a transcript in the Bible of all these conversations. And so by definition, it is a biblical, right? But one thing that you can do whenever you're reading or uh, watching something like the chosen is you realize, Oh, Jesus was a middle Eastern Jewish, like construction worker surrounded by a bunch of other blue collar guys. And they probably weren't walking around talking like this. And then I went over here and got two loaves and a fish. And then we came back and Jesus blessed them. And we fed all of the people like, but, I read it that way, though, and I have to like catch myself and be like, no, wait a minute. That's true. How do we have personalities, but God doesn't, that, but, but Jesus didn't have a personality. Like We're made in, in his image. We're made in God's image, and we think that God just doesn't have a personality. So that kind of smacked me in the face. It's, it's a random thing that you, I guess you can easily pass by, but I guess did, did that catch any of you guys up? Because it's like, oh, God was up there laughing like, you morons, what are y'all doing down there? Yeah. Well, first off, let's address the chosen. I mean, the... Whoever doesn't like the chosen. <laughs> okay, but you've I'll seen these people, right? Like, because I know, like, you watched it twice, before so. I did. Favorite show I've ever seen. Let's talk. It's great. <laughs> okay, so I mean, uh, of all biblical shows, whatever, what other show are you going to watch that is more morally based? So, biblically? so this is what the uh, the argument is. So, so, Russell, have you seen people complain about the chosen? Uh, I, I mean, I'm, obviously, I think they're. Um, I've seen individuals who are like, hey, it's not word for word, literal. And so, you know, now you're adding context to, you know, scripture, right? And, right. and you, you need to be careful. But again, uh, my comments are, it's a fictional thing that's providing visual for a guy like me yeah. to context. Like, I, I don't know what Middle Eastern, you know, first century yep. Amer- uh, uh, Jerusalem look like. It gives right. me really good context and helps me. But I also, I do have the tinge of like, man, it's hard to not think of Jesus like that guy Jonathan in the chosen, Rumi. right? Jonathan yep. Rumi, he, it's, it's hard for me not to think of him that way. And so I can see how there's a little bit of challenge there, but again, I, I'm, I'm in the camp of, I, I like the chosen and I think it's provided a lot of value for a lot of people. Well, and the weird thing about it is I know people that 
you know, I, I love and respect their opinion. I, if you don't like Chosen, great. It's a TV show. Like you're not going to like every right. single TV right. show, regardless of its popularity. But I know people that have never watched a minute of the show. They're like, no, it's inappropriate. It's wrong. It's whatever. Uh, you know, you can't depict uh, God in film. You like, you can't do any of those different things. But to go to your point about like, you know, when I'm reading the the gospel accounts now, I do have Jonathan Rumi out there walking around and the guy who plays Peter and the guy who plays yep. John. And I, I have that going on, but I think that there's a right ordering of that because for how many decades have people seen Jim Caviezel in their brain, right. the guy who played, you know, him Passion in the, the Passion of the Christ. And it's like, well, that's a blue eyed white guy from America pretending to be a Middle Eastern Jewish, you know, construction worker. And part of the reason that I liked the chosen so much from the very beginning is I was like, these look like first century Jews, right? Or it, in my mind, what people like that would look like. And so it's like, it's a better representation. But for me, I'll say it helps me as I'm reading the gospels, right? Because it's like, it's showing me like, okay, this is probably what it was like. And there, oh, look, there's animals right there. So here's maybe some smells that were happening in that area. And it's like, it's literally bringing the scripture to, to light, like right under my right. nose. Right. And there will be several times in each episode. I mean, we're through season three now. So it's like, you know, 24 episodes, maybe I would say at least once in an episode, there will be a situation like the very first episode, spoiler alert, you know, when he calls uh, Mary and says, you are mine from behind. I'm just thinking like, that's exactly, that's me. If I was a girl, I'd be Mary right now. He just called me and I just, I'll tell you the first time I watched the first season, I was breaking down in tears mm. just from every episode, just going through and realizing that what they're trying to get across. And, you know, it seems almost completely biblical, but there might be a couple lines in there. They just have to make good TV out of it. I mean, we can agree that it's probably the best available of what's on TV right now for a Christian TV show. Um, but yeah, just, I think that, that, that wow factor of, you know, everybody can really relate to at least one powerful scene in each episode really struck me. I own the first season of The Chosen, so mm. I'm not a Chosen hater. Um, here's what I don't like about The Chosen, is a lot of people are taking The Chosen, they're taking it as the Bible. They're not getting into the Word. Yeah. And, and it just reminds me of Christian radio stations. You know, people aren't going to church, they're listening to the Christian radio station right. uh, and getting their worship that way rather than worshiping as a community. So I think when it comes to The Chosen, um, I think it's great writing. Um, Dallas Jenkins, I believe that's his name, did a great job of bringing, I think, the Bible to life to a point um, in coming from a Hollywood uh, background. Um, but I really feel like if the, if the people of The Chosen really cared so much about getting the story out, there would be a push more of like, hey, watch this show, but let's dive into this this week, you know, dive into this chapter of the Bible. We're going over this chapter or, you know, this, this is, these are the chapters we're covering, um, in this episode. I just think it's a great, uh, springboard to what people should actually be doing, which is opening the word. Well, and to be fair, they, they do have devotionals. They have Bibles that, that people are buying. Right. And the thing that I, I think that some people that get their hackles up about the chosen, they forget is like genres you you have to understand that there are different genres. So even as you're reading the Bible, mm -hmm. you can't read Song of Solomon the same way that you read Isaiah, the same way that you read Revelation, the same way that you read Luke, because they're different genres. They're not meant to be read the same, right? And then there are certain things here that the genre of that is not biblical, historical, documentary. 
Because if that's it and you have someone reading through the gospel accounts and then all of a sudden they throw in their own words or, or something like that, it's like, okay, yeah, that, that's a major problem. But it's like when you're bringing something to light, you can't use just what's described in scripture because there will be holes all over the place. And also kind of, kind of coming back to uh, Psalm 2-4, uh, giving personality. I remember something in season one where uh, they were you know, the disciples, the apostles of Jesus were going to be staying somewhere. And the guy who like owned the house is like, oh, you know, that, you know, that room back there is haunted. And Jesus goes, "Ooh, I want that one. And it's so funny. And the thing is, is like, did Jesus say that? Probably not. Right. Does that change the salvific nature of the life and the ministry that he did on this earth? No. And so it's like, it's entertainment. It's meant to entertain you. Now, it's what they take liberties with that we need to pay attention to. Because if they start taking liberty with some of the miracles and injecting stuff that's not there, I see that as deeply problematic. And then obviously, we're a few seasons away from, you know, the crucifixion and resurrection. If they take liberties with that, right, obviously there would be an, a massive, massive uproar. But anyway, I, I'm glad we kind of took that detour because I think the chosen is important. But you're right, Ryan, it, people do need to understand like, okay, this should make you interested in the word more this should like feed your hunger for the word and i think you may said the word entertain it's the same thing that people do at church so they go to church you know a couple times a month and they go there to be entertained they want to hear good music they want to sing along a little bit here or there they want the pastor to make them laugh and make them think a little bit not to convict them in any way shape or form because the 11th commandment is to be as nice as possible and to not make people uncomfortable but like that's what they want out of church and so it's kind of the same thing there but or go ahead he sits and laughs at those services. Oh, does he <laughs> sits and laughs at those sur- the seeker sensitive services. But like the thing about it that, that I probably the first time for me that this changed guys was when I read a beautiful outlaw by John Eldridge. And so there's uh, obviously he wrote wild at heart, the Seminole men's ministry book out there. Some of his other books, people have been critical of it. It's like, Oh, it's a little bit too po- poetic for me. And I don't really understand it. But that book was the first time I realized like, cause that book, you know, chapter by chapter, it, it breaks down the personality of Jesus, essentially using biblical stories from the gospels. And that was the first time I was like, Oh, Jesus was a guy. Like he was a normal guy. He got angry, righteously. He was sad. He was tired. Like those, those types of things. And so I don't know when that time like came for you guys, but that was like, I was in my twenties and I knew kind of the, the Bible stories, but I never really thought of Jesus as a dude with a personality. Yeah. I would say that, um, it kind of just brings it to life and gives them personality, whether it's, uh, the chosen or, um, whatever you're, you're watching, but it's the fact that it's always been two dimensional, you know, and since I've become a Christian, it's always been reading out of the Bible. You're it's audio, you know, there's nothing visual to how Jesus would have reacted or, you know, how he spoke to people, but all throughout, uh, the gospels, it's, it's preaching, um, fellowship and brotherly love and, uh, kindness and, uh, creating, uh, relationships. And you need to see that Jesus was a real person. He created relationships. You know, I don't have any buddies that we just sit around and we'll just read a book monotone to each other. And then part ways and go home. That's just mm-hmm. not how it works. You have to build rapport. You have to have jokes. You have to have everything. You got to break down and cry. You know, you got to have all these different aspects of a relationship to be in fellowship with somebody. And I think that that's kind of something that maybe the show is getting across. So Russ, you said something earlier, whenever you were talking about your, uh, your upbringing, you know, yeah. moral upbringing, but not really spiritual in any way. And I would yeah. say the exact same for me. It's like, oh, we're, we're Christians because we were born in Oklahoma. Like that was our theology in our household growing up. Every Bible had, you know, an inch of dust on the top of it. But like, 
if you can go back to that time period, because obviously I just told you it wasn't until my twenties where I even like thought about Jesus having a personality. Did it ever occur to you that Jesus was like an actual person, not just a character and a story that we're supposed to take really seriously? And no, not when I was, um, not any time young in my life. I mean, I was, you know, I was in my twenties, similar to you, um, you know, probably in college, um, when, when that became real to me and it was really just through reading the gospels, right. Seeing, you know, Jesus answer questions, right. With questions. And, and, you know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible and all of the Bible is just when, you know, Jesus asks, Hey, do we need to pay, or somebody asks, do we need to pay taxes too? And he's like, go show me a coin. Let me see. That's Caesar's face, right? Like, okay, give to Caesar what Caesar, give to God what's God, right? I mean, just, I love that because, you know, he was practical. He understood that, you know, Hey, I need to be focused on what I need to be focused on and, and bringing my kingdom here. But there's also a world here that I have to like live in, right? I'm, I, he was still a man. And so he still operated with your, Hey, you need to pay your taxes. Oh, go get this fish. Hey, and that fish is mm-hmm. enough for me and you, right? Go pay our taxes. Um, so th- th- that stuff just really stuck out to me. And, and you mentioned this, um, it's funny. One of the commentaries mentions that giving God, you know, humanistic characteristics is anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism, yeah. right? The big word. So, I didn't know that, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think you have to, I mean, obviously Jesus Christ, because he was a man, but even God and even I'm the Holy spirit understanding that we were creating his image and understanding that they, there were those characteristics, right? Um, I mean, we see God get angry. We see God get sad. We see God get jealous. We see God laugh. We see, I mean, all these things that we understand in our own Imago day, right. Is, Mm. is really who God is. Well, and so, so you say, you know, so when you anthropomorphize something, guys, yeah. even if you don't know the word, you know exactly what it looks like. That's why Simba and Timon and Pumbaa are having such a good time because you're giving human characteristics to things that are not human. So when you, you'll notice this when you're watching like kids cartoons or something like that, the eyes, nose and mouth of animals are going to be drawn differently because humans are very expressive with their eyes. But like an alligator is not expressive with their eyes. But when it's an alligator in a cartoon, super expressive eyes, that's anthropomorphizing. Like you're giving that. Now we can get into trouble. So like when people treat their dogs like children and they give their dogs like, so your dog is not sitting around thinking, oh man, I just don't really know about my place in the world. And like, gosh, I've just been sitting here all day and I, I, I ate that food that was on the floor again. I can't believe I did that. They're not doing that. But we will look at them and be like, oh, look at how sad they are. Look at how this and that. It's like, no, 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 no. That is a dog. They don't have consciousness, which and I don't want to go on this thing, but just some food for thought for people. There was somebody that was trying to explain like when an animal's being eaten alive, they don't even understand they're being eaten alive because they don't understand that there's a them, that they're, that they're experiencing that because they have no idea what self-consciousness is. They have no awareness of where they are in the world. They're driven completely by instincts, which is exactly what atheists would say about us is, you know, we're just dancing to our DNA. We're just highly evolved chimps that wear, you know, pants and talk to one another. So I definitely don't want to get get into that route, but you were, you were going to say something about that. Yeah. Well, no, I was going to say something about personalities. Um, When we ascribe personalities to God and to, to Christ is, I think there's one thing that we we kind of miss sometimes, or at least I missed in the past. Like I could tell a joke could be a crude joke. And I'm like, you know what? God's got a sense of humor, but here's the thing. God's holy. Jesus is holy. And that's one thing we have to remember is that they're going to have these aspects of, uh, of how we're made, uh, to love, to laugh, to whatever cheesy thing you can find at the Hobby Lobby. 
um, we're going to be able to do that. But God's going to... We gonna, should get some of those signs and put them on the wall right here. All the ones from Hobby Lobby. Go ahead. I don't want to... Ryan mess up your the point. antagonist. Yeah, right. Sorry. Sorry. I, I'm pretty sure my brother-in-law buys those, by the way. So. Oh, gosh. Uh, but does he listen to this? Uh, no, he doesn't, but he works for Hobby Lobby. So. Okay. This is getting worse the more you, you keep talking uh, about But it. no, but what, what I'm talking about is, you know, we're... We're made in in God's image, you know. We're made in Christ's image, um, but we have to remember that their image is holy. So their love is totally different than our love. They understand love on a different basis than we understand love. They understand justice on a different basis than we understand justice. And so I think it's good that we provide a personality for Christ and for God that we know that they're in this image. But we have to be reverent of that um, because in the past I was irreverent in that, you know. Well, that doesn't give us. I think the thing is that doesn't give us license. So I love talking about when Jesus cleared the temple, he actually did right. that twice once, right. You know, shortly after his first miracle and once after he, you know, came back in triumphantly into, uh, to Jerusalem, cleared it out twice. And then some guys will be like, all right, I'm going to go into you know Sunday school and I'm just going to start driving people out because Jesus did. It's like, but that again, I always talk about univariate analysis. If you do a univariate analysis, you will take a whip into church or you'll take a whip into the bar. You'll take a whip into work and you will do work that way. But, when you start peeling away the layers and be like, is my anger in this moment righteous? Because Jesus did it, does that mean that I do it in the exact same way? Or is that you know, a lesson that's going to teach me something in a certain way? Now, some people go way far over to the other side and they were like, Jesus is the only one allowed to do any of these types of things, right? So he didn't allow his disciples or apostles to do those things. So we're not supposed to do it either. It's like, no, actually you're a coward and you just don't want to like push and you just want to say, no, Jesus is going to take care of it. But yeah, we just don't have license to perform those things in that way. We do need to dig more into the context of what's going on in that story and what we're supposed to be gleaning from that as, you know, image bearers of God. One thing I did want to kind of say, and I don't know if you guys want to talk too much about it, but verse seven is really, really interesting just because of how dense it is and how many times it refers to stuff in the New Testament. Maybe this will just be something for you guys to, to go and look at on your own. But I'll read verse seven here. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So verse seven of Psalm two, uh, that is referred to in Matthew 3.17 and Matthew 17.5, Acts 13.33 Hebrews 1.5 and Hebrews 5.5. And so that is described a whole lot. And there was another commentary. I got to start writing down like what commentary I'm getting these things from because it's like, if it's smart, it definitely didn't come from me. But that quote where it says, you are my son, this is the only place in the entire Old Testament, I believe this is true, the only place in the entire Old Testament where there's a reference to the father-son relationship inside the Trinity, which is an enormous deal. Because when you talk to people that are not Trinitarian, you know, and you talk to, you know, Muslim scholars and all that, and like the, just, the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. So no, there's no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no God in three persons, three in one. Like that doesn't matter. But this is just one of those times where it's a foreshadowing to the Son's coming, but who he is in reference to the Godhead, right? Like he, he brings with him and God sends the Holy Spirit and leaves the Holy Spirit after he you know, goes back up to heaven uh, and things like that. But I thought that that was like, I, I had never read that before where that was the only reference to the father son dichotomy, which also gets into people that believe that, you know, Jesus is, you know, somehow non-binary that Jesus, like there is, you know, God isn't a, a male, like we shouldn't refer to him as such, you know, God is just, she as well. God is a, they, them like this kind of goes against that language as well, because you're talking about father, son. And when Jesus talks about God, he uses masculine pronouns and he talks to 
his father in those types. But did you guys like, did y'all know that? Cause I, I didn't know that before I started really digging into the Psalm. I didn't, I had something different that I can go into later. You can go in now. Uh, well, um, I thought it was pretty cool when I was reading about it. Um, it was talking about you are my son. So the foreshadowing was that somebody was going to come as a man rather than God raising somebody from the dead to be the Messiah. Okay. So, right, and that's thought, what makes it messianic. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was, uh, it was just a really, really interesting point, which I guess, and I don't know if this is just a me problem. I don't know if it's different for you guys. But I, I really struggle with reading. Like, I've, I've always been bad at it. Like, you know, when you take all those tests for, you know, AP English or whatever, and it's like, okay, read this passage and then now answer these questions. I will read the passage and go to the questions and be like, I wonder if I'm on the wrong page because these don't refer to anything I just read. And then I go back to paragraphs like, oh, I'm, I'm just stupid. Great. And so, like, I've always kind of been that way. But I don't pick up these little details. Like, they just don't hit my brain. I don't know, like y'all may have like more brain, you know, horsepower than I do, but as I'm reading, like, I don't know that I ever would have just noticed that. You know what I mean? Is it different for you guys? Yeah. I feel like most of the time when I'm reading, it's just very direct and I'm trying to understand what this means, you know, just directly how God is presenting it. But to see those underlying factors, you know, God presented or put it, um, set his son on Zion, set him on the hill. And, um, you know, that is prophecy of of christ coming and where he'll have his millennial kingdom is on zion and it just kind of i didn't see that underlying factor you know the first time i read through it and you're going through psalm 2 you get to verse 7 and you feel like he's uh talking about david as his son you know and uh just kind of it took me a second to read it two or three times like we talked about earlier i need to read it several times to understand that wait a minute wait a minute it just occurred to me that you've been a Christian for like three years and you just said millennial kingdom. You're like a big deal, man. Like you're sitting over there like, Oh, I'm not that smart and all that. You're just throwing out theological words and all that kind of stuff. Like that's pretty big. Good for you. Listening. Yeah, I gotta yeah. Listen. <laughs> you got through listening. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I think it's great with what Zach said. Um, you know, I read that and you, you could see how God's talking to David. Um, and David is his son. Uh, and the fact that Jesus comes from the line of David. So, um, you know, the foreshadowing in that is it, it, great. Um, so I, th- I think it's a good way that you, you looked at that and went back and read it and just ca- kind of how the Holy Spirit just kind of opened that up to you. So, right, because he put David, uh, you know, in a physical time, you know, whenever it was, it, when was David uh, king? A thousand years before Christ? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, he said, David on the throne. He made him king uh, for a time until Christ would come. Yeah. So just like how it um, kind of foreshadowed and said, you know, for the coming Messiah. Go ahead. To, I was say to your point about those little details, though, I think that speaks to like, you know, for all the listeners and for all of us individually is to like read the totality of, Christ, of the Bible, right? It's like read it and read it again and read it again and read it again for the rest of our life. And we'll continue to see those threads kind of lay out, oh, wow, this is an Acts, and this is in Hebrew, and Hebrews, and now this is here. Um, and that's why I, I know I'm, I'm guilty of this. Like, it's so much easier to kind of read things that are maybe a little bit, the New Testament in particular, it's just easier and, and flows better, and it's where Jesus is, and it's where those red letters are, right? You know, everybody likes I those, love red, those letters, red letters. Right? Everybody yep. loves the red letters. But, <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, going back, and, and I, I know that um, last year, you know, I, I read through, you know, a lot of the Old Testament and, and like Leviticus and Numbers, and man, those, those can be really challenging. But just understanding the process of sacrifice and all those things, like, man, understanding what this meant 
in light of what the New Testament brings, right? And so just just you know really spending time on things that maybe you didn't. And, and and so my point there is, I think those little details really show up one from the Holy Spirit and two from time in God's word. When I guess proof texting is a dangerous thing that that guys will do. They'll have an idea. It's like it's like a scientist knowing how they want the experiment to go, and then they build the experiment out, hoping to get that in. That's not what you're supposed to do. But I would say, in my opinion that it would be appropriate to read any part of the Bible and the gospels or not as if it's talking about Jesus somehow, because I think it's like 66 books are telling the same exact story. And so that's been helpful for me as I'm reading. Cause now like, and we'll get into this in some of our later Psalms that, that we'll be talking about in the weeks to come to where it's like this, like, when they wrote this down, they didn't know exactly how this was going to manifest, but we do because we've got all of these, right. you know, transcripts, all these, you know, ancient transcripts together and it's bound in a book and we got it digitally and all these other different ways. I think that's really important. But another thing that kind of came up, Zach, as you were talking, the other Zach, we'll just call him the other Zach from now on. So, so he's not here to defend himself, but Zach Todd. So he's been a Christian for only a few years as well. And he, in his thirties, he reads the Bible the same way that you do. And y'all's brains work very differently and your personalities are very different. but it's so refreshing. Like when a younger new Christian is just like, man, well, the Bible just says it. So right. I guess I have to do that. Whereas like, if you've been a Christian for decades, it's like, well, I wonder what the nuance of this particular passage is and how it connects to blah, 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 and such and such. And then when you talk to Christians that are in like sub-Saharan Africa or, you know, the global South, as it were, these people that are coming to Christ in Iran or in China or in, you know, uh, Korea, North Korea, things like that. They're just looking at the words and going, I guess that's what we're supposed to do. They're not worried about translations. They're not worried about, you know, how they're going to do their worship service and whether or not that's going to allow them to keep getting people to come in. Like, it's just a big deal for them to be able to even have these words. And so they cherish them. Whereas we're kind of like cynical because we're Americans and we're Westernized. And it's like, well, does it really mean that? Did he really say? Well, everybody wants to make it their own and make it more comfortable for them. And that's where we're at in life, you know, in this day. But being a new Christian for three years, it's like, you know, I started reading the Bible. Somebody told me right off the bat, um, go through the gospels, read the gospels over and over yep. and over and over. And you'll start to get it. Read John, read Matthew again. And what I started to understand was here's the 10 commandments. These are the rules. I've told God that I believe in him and that he's the creator of the universe. And I believe that in my heart and I've been changed and I'm reborn. And he's given me a new heart, like Ezekiel says. And so why wouldn't I follow the rules? You know, I tell God that I want to submit and I want to be his servant and he owns me. And I know that. Why wouldn't I follow the rules? Right. Well, so let's talk about submit. So we'll we'll go to the end of Psalm 2 here. We're going to start in verse 10. I'll just read through the end. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So at the beginning of verse 12, kiss the son, that is an act of submission, okay? So you are submitting to him and his rule. And when I first read verses 10 and 11, I wrote down in my margin here, it's essentially modern rulers don't do this at all. So it doesn't matter what country you're in, rulers don't think about how they can honor God and the things that they're doing. I say that, uh, there was a news story that that popped up a, a while back about uh, the Ugandan government uh, passing a law that made homosexuality illegal. And they also did a bunch of other things. They have the death penalty for rape, which is like 
Yes, absolutely. If you're going to rape somebody, if you're going to hold them down and violate them sexually, sorry, you lose your life. Um, but that, and I can't make a biblical, uh, you know, argument for that necessarily. Cause you know, we basically kill people that kill people. But anyway, we'll diverge from that. But God, when you're reading this, it's like, oh my gosh, God's so mean and so angry. He's like telling them to be wise and repent and all that. But God gives them ample time to do this. It wasn't like, all right, y'all are acting bad and stop it right now. In, in the context of this passage, he gives them very, very uh, ample time to be able to repent. But then when you start getting into verse 12, it's like, look, it, his wrath is quickly kindled. Like he can do what he wants to do on his own timeline. And in his tremendous and abundance grace, he's given you a shot at this. But even in America, even Christian politicians in America, whether they're in your local community or, you know, in the Capitol building in D.C., does anybody consider what the scriptures say before they go in and vote before they're you, before you go into the booth? Like, are you taking into account what is going to be glorified or destroyed via this piece of legislation or what this politician is going to do? And I feel like that's where, you know, it's kind of where we started this whole discussion, but everything's so unbelievably out of whack that we don't really know where to go. So we just go with our own understanding, which I'll know about you guys, but typically when I lean on my own understanding, 100% of the time, I'm not batting a thousand, but that's just me. Yeah. I mean, when I go in and vote, I look at the policy and I want to see which policy kind of fits my narrative, hopefully a biblical narrative when I'm voting, uh, depending on where my mind's at. But uh, um, yeah, you would hope somebody would see that. Um, I, I like the, the part of submission um, of, of bringing this up and um, we, we got to submit to God's will. We've got to submit to what, what we know is right and what we know is wrong and, and what he views as holy and try to do our best to uh, do that. Right, and I think when you're going to the voting booth, um, and we hear this from the pulpit at our church, and it's not a suggestion on how to vote, but it is just a reminder that we hear before every voting cycle is to vote what's biblical. You know, read scripture, understand what is at stake, and vote what is biblical. Um, and then getting back to uh, submitting to Christ there. Can I actually hop yeah. in there? So please don't lose your point about the submission. But that's actually something that I've leveled as a criticism of our church. When our pastor, who we, we, all, we all deeply respect and, you know, obviously very, very smart, we're, we're so thankful that we have an expository preacher like that in our, basically in our neighborhood that we can go to. Before an election, I think it would have been in 2022, he said, remember on Tuesday, vote biblical values. And then he just left it there. But it's like, bro, you're talking to a bunch of sheep like a bunch of dummies, like pretend that we're sheep. Okay. So we're the dumbest animal on the planet. And you just say this, this bumper sticker slogan, like vote biblical values. It's like, can you be more specific? Can you be more precise? Now, I don't think that he should put up on the screen, you know, a sample of the ballot and say, this is what I've done. And if you don't do it, you know, if you want to go to hell, that's on you. Like, I don't think they should necessarily do that. But at the same time, there are people that think they're doing something biblical by allowing the genital mutilation of children because they don't want kids to be, to feel bad. And if a kid truly feels like they're the opposite gender, well, aren't Christians supposed to love? Again, they, you don't get that from a deep reading of scripture, but that for me, I was like, no, that's problematic because people again, do univariate analysis and they're going to say, well, God is a God of love. And if people want to love, even if it's someone of the same gender, who am I to judge? It's like, Come on. Like, what are you talking about? So does, does that make sense? Like, I, I, right. I was like, we need to be a little bit more explicit than that. Yeah, it could be a little bit more explicit in, in just maybe pointing out 
which parts of the election or what part of the ballots are biblical um, in his views or what, you know, from a biblical standpoint, what would be the, the biblical vote. Um, but if you've gone to our church for any amount of time, you understand where the values are and what he's saying, the underlying factors of when he says vote, vote biblical, you know what he's saying. I agree. I mean, we all go to the same church. Um, I know what he's talking about. I, I see Kyle's point in that some, there are some people who don't know what he's talking about, but I mean, where we live now, I mean, he can't go over the ballot. I mean, you just lose your 501c3 status if you do that, you know? Um, but what he can do is he can point out, you know, Hey, murder is murder. Um, mutilation is mutilation. Um, he, he could point those things out. I, I can see where it's coming from, but, uh, also we could set up something on like a Wednesday night, you know, to kind of go over, you know, what voting biblical values would be like. Um, yeah. But, but I hear what you're saying. I have brought that up to our pastor before when he's going to start having a Q and a like John MacArthur. <laughs> he just kind of looked at me like, man, if you knew how busy I was, you wouldn't ask, but uh, I think uh, I'll put a, a seed in his ear. So maybe we'll, we'll see that one day. What were you going to say, Russ? No, I was just going to say, I mean, so, so I don't disagree that, you know, there are probably, you know, just sheep, just, you know, people in the, in the pulpit that may not know, and that's on us. That's on us as men to educate ourselves, to educate our families, to educate those around us. I mean, I don't disagree that, you know, maybe someone with the influence that our pastor or any pastor could have is, hey, here are, you know, these three items on the ballot. Um, please go home and, and dig into these. You know, he could maybe point, maybe point us in a direction, but, but not, not necessarily say how to vote or what to vote or whatever, because um, I don't know. It's I like just, a scavenger hunt. Felt, but it's like, <laughs> I mean, sure. But, but again, that's on us. I mean, I that's just, I mean, we, we have to take that responsibility um, as men, as, I mean, because, you know, church is, you know, and I think I've heard Ryan say this. I mean, I really do. And, and I would agree with Ryan's context in this. If this, he was the one that said this is um, that, you know, we're supposed to get like fed in, in those. I mean, the pastor's feeding sheep there. Right. And those of us who are, you know, who have been in, um, you know, in the body for some period of time should take the next step and be, you know, disciples and laborers. We're not supposed to just be those converts. We're not supposed to be just seeking the milk, right? We need to be like seeking the food. I'm there on Sundays. Like I love our pastor's teaching, but I'm not really there just to get his teaching. I'm there to serve my you know, small group. I'm there to serve the other people around me. I'm there to teach my children. I'm there to, you know, and, and so that's on us, right? And, but to your point, there are a lot of people in that body who are ignorant. Right. And, and so what's the balance? Well, so your point on personal responsibility is well taken because ultimately it's, it's up to you. I mean, Ryan, it's three, four years ago. Now you bought me uh, that Vody Bauckham book, family shepherds, where it's like, okay, like it's not the church's responsibility to catechize your family. Like it's not the church's responsibility to be the spiritual, you know, thermostat of your household. Like, you know, get your crap together on this particular thing though. The, the, the pastor is also responsible for equipping the saints. And in that way, if you are leaving it so gray to where the saints might vote for something that actively hurts and harms image bearers of Christ, and they're doing so unknowingly because they're ignorant, and I don't use that to be derisive, but they're just ignorant about what this person will do once in office or what that person will do or something like that. That's where it's like, okay, it can be explicit. And I would actually disagree, Ryan. I think in terms of the ballot, like having the ballot up there, you're not going to lose your 501c3 status as a church if you come up and say, 
When you vote for a person that is a representative of the modern Democratic Party, you cannot do that and vote biblical values because the DNC says that abortion should be legal up to the day of birth for, and for any reason whatsoever and paid for by the American taxpayer. And you cannot be a Christian and vote in that way. It doesn't come down to tax policy. It doesn't come down to the to immigration. It doesn't come down to the border. It doesn't come down to any of that. That's where I would say something like that. It is appropriate. It's like, does do they need to be hosting rallies for politicians? Not in their pulpit, but. I hear where you're coming with that. And I don't know if it's a state law or something like that, but you cannot, you cannot put out information about a candidate or like Put out their their signs or something like that at your it's church. an irs statute is an irs statute well i mean you go to churches here i've seen churches where actually people running as democrats oh uh, they, they all do yeah, they <laughs> like, go to the church and sides. like they have like a whole you know you, i saw rally. it in fbc dallas and not even a dallas it's a sunday morning when you should be expository or getting into the scriptures and and expositing scripture and they've got some political candidate up there talking about, you know, why you should vote for them. It's, it's, it, I've seen it on the left and the right. Um, I, I agree. I think, I think we should pull up, you know, this is what the Republicans believe. This is what the Democrats believe. And we should put that into a, you know, kind of a, a thing to look at um, just to show, you know, hey, these are, these are biblical values. These are not biblical values. Um, and and let, let the person judge from there. You know what might be interesting? Because most churches have, oh, I just forgot the phrase, but it's like uh, the church's beliefs and uh, doctrines or, or stuff and that bylaws. they- Yeah, bylaws. Yeah. So wouldn't it be a valuable tool to throw up a QR code or print some off, you know, you know, if you're above the age of, if you're born in the 1900s, you may not know what a QR code is, but like where you say like, hey, based on our bylaws and how we- uh, the things that we believe about scripture and things that we hold, here's how that applies to what's on the ballot this time around, right? Here's how these values apply to what is currently happening in our community. And this should inform you as you go into the booth on Tuesday. It's not saying, Hey, check the box for this candidate over that candidate. But it's like, this person is saying these particular things and let's put that through the lens of scripture or we'll put that through the matrix or uh, filter of scripture to kind of see what comes out on the other end. That would probably be something that would be a value that where you have a PDF to where it applies in your community. Because again, we should be voting for the most amount of human flourishing possible. And that's not always on the ballot in the most perfect way, shape, or form, but it would at least be a little bit helpful. But guys, uh, that was a great discussion about Psalm 2. Two newbies, and here we are. We just knocked out an hour, and it just flew by. So nicely done on your first try here. But we're going to have to leave Psalm 22 there. But make sure you come back next week. Or sorry, that was Psalm 2, and that was already foreshadowing. Next week, we're going to be getting into Psalm 22. So guys, do your homework. Go and read Psalm 22 this week and be ready to go for next week. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Here's the thing. The only link that we've got for you is our donation page. Guys, we cannot pull off the things that we pull off as a ministry without you guys. We get a little bit of money from advertising, but it's guys like you that are parting ways with your hard-earned dollars to make sure we can equip men around the globe to push back darkness. So to all the people that have donated or are monthly donors, you are the guys that are keeping it up and keeping us going and flowing, but we need more guys just like you so that we can continue to create content and equip people around the globe.
Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.